you will please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The question often comes up, at least in Christian circles, whether or not the righteous who are suffering is really quite fair. Why the very idea of righteousness seems, doesn't it, to presuppose that God should both protect and reward those who follow him? Doesn't it stand to reason? Should there be, or even better, can there be any such thing as righteous suffering? Don't the majority of people in the world assume that if you're wicked and unrighteous in this life, then you'd better be the one on the lookout for at least some kind of punishment. And yet, if you're a righteous person, holy because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you should be getting ample rewards and protection from God instead of experiencing suffering and and pain. I mean, it only seems to be a topsy-turvy kind of ideal that the righteous, who are righteous by Christ, in Christ, for Christ, are the ones who seemingly take most of the brunt of the suffering. And the unrighteous, the wicked, seem at times to have full control of the world and seemingly don't always see the kinds of things that the righteous are suffering. And perhaps there are those who, being in control, are also able to control what happens to them, or so it seems. So what do you make of this? It's a great question, isn't it? Why does it seem as though the righteous are suffering as they are, and particularly at the hands of the unrighteous? I mean, I'm sure that this is what these first century Christians, the Thessalonians, might have been asking in their minds. We're trying to follow you, Lord. We love Jesus. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our shepherd, the very shepherd of our souls. Why the intense suffering? Why the pain? Why the agony, the insults, the persecutions, the afflictions? Why? Is it because we are following you? What's in it for us? Will we ever receive anything good from your hand? And what about the unrighteous? Lord, I mean, they seem not to have the same kinds of persecutions and afflictions and trouble and tribulations as as we do as believers in Jesus. What about them? Doesn't it even stand a reason that in the Psalms, which so often gives us this kind of refrain, why, why, why does it happen that the righteous seem to suffer and the unrighteous seem to go off scot-free? Doesn't David, the psalmist, say in Psalm 13 these words, 
words that are so very clear in our minds. How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13.1. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's a fair question. It's a very fair question. And not just from David. One of the other psalmists, Asaph, says this in Psalm 73, beginning in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. You and I see it, don't we? Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, why am I keep doing what I'm doing in the innocence of my heart and in the righteousness of my desires when it doesn't seem like it's amounting to anything? For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Why, Lord? I mean, what's in it for us? What's, what's the Lord up to? Well, I suggest to you that perhaps Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10 is a huge answer. Huge answer. I mean, in answer, at least to some extent, these assumptions about the woes of our suffering as Christians and at the punishment for the righteous, it seems, here on this earth, persecutions, assaults, invectives, taunts, afflictions, And oh, by the way, the more the years roll on, the more intense, the Bible says, it will become. So perhaps we need a good solid answer, and we find it right here in this chapter. Perhaps there's a very solid and careful answer by the Apostle Paul to this seeming, and I put seeming in quotes, seeming dilemma of the suffering of the righteous as given right here in our biblical text. Now I say seeming dilemma. I mean, when you're in it, it is a dilemma. But it has a purpose. It has a design. And the design goes something like this. Verse 4. 
2 Thessalonians 1, therefore, we ourselves boast about you, you Thessalonians, in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now you know why I started the message with prayer. This is sobering. And it's also exhilarating and exciting and heartfelt and joyous and sad all at the same time. What does the preacher do with this? I mean, do you do a message where you're emphasizing the glory of marveling at our Savior as you see him come no longer by faith but by sight? Well, I want to do that. But do you also, because it's here in our Bibles, warn the coming destruction of the world of the unrighteous? Well, we also have to do that, don't we? And this text has both. I'm going to give you four key elements of this text. In the remaining time we have together, four key elements of this text that give you both sides. Both sides. Maybe we could call it the dividing line. The dividing line of of both of these destinies. Of both of these things that will occur in our world. And make no mistake about it, friends. These things will happen. They will happen. Forget the naysayers. Ignore the critics. The word of God speaks and the word of God is true and the word of God will reveal the truth of this one day. Let's talk about the first key element. It's in verses four and five. Let's call it Paul's commendation. If you see your outline points on the back of your Lord's Day bulletin, you see that's the first of four, Paul's commendation. He's he's commending them. What's he commending them for? Listen to what he says. Therefore, and that harkens us back to the very previous verse, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And we went through that last time, didn't we? Our last exposition of, of this 
particular book, 2 Thessalonians, we talked a great deal about verse 3, and I stopped us there at verse 3 because there's so much packed into verses 1, 2, and 3. We wanted to to sort of squeeze every morsel of that encouragement, the encouragement of this, that your faith is growing abundantly, that the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. We, we have to see all of this in the context of now what verse 4 says. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness or perhaps in your Bible, English Bible translation, endurance, and faith. And notice how it's juxtaposed with this in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, I didn't didn't write the story. I'm just reporting it. Steadfastness, faith, enduring faith, Growing steadfastness, those are Christian virtues that are a delight to the soul. It's just that next part I'm not so sure of. In all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Signed up for the first one, not so sure about the second one. But this is a part of it. This is a part of the Christian life. We're going to see this. And Paul says, I fully acknowledge in terms of the reports about you that you are experiencing these persecutions and they are rough and they are tough and they are debilitating and they are coming upon you with the kind of rapidity that you want to say, uncle, I've had enough. Stop the persecutions and they continue. And the afflictions. Your translation might even say tribulations. That's a good alternate translation of that word, afflictions. It's tribulations, persecutions, and tribulations. And I want you to see something. I want you to see that in God's design, God's economy, for steadfastness and faith, those are those positive Christian virtues, are mentioned just alongside persecutions and afflictions or tribulations. They belong together. And if there's anything that we see here in verse 4 that Paul is commending these Thessalonians for in this context, it's this, that God orchestrates, and this is a principle for you and for me in our lives, even if we're not dying by the sword or even if we are not poked in by the, the spear, God's sovereign design, he orchestrates suffering for the righteous because it breeds those very things, steadfastness and faith. Causes it, breeds it, propels it. The, The very reason that they are more steadfast than they were before is precisely because of the persecutions and the tribulations. It's what it does. It's it's God's design. Are you in a challenging marriage? Problems with the kids? Financial issues? Being misunderstood by friends? Being bantied about by foes for who you are? 
especially for your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, whatever it may be, whatever you're suffering, it is the very suffering that God orchestrates so that you may be even more steadfast than you were before. That, that you, through the tribulations of your life, are in fact having an increasing and growing faith. This is, this is what God is doing and why. So if you want to ask a lot of those why questions, why the suffering, why the persecutions, why do you dog my steps, you, you pursuers? Why is this fair? How does this do anything good for me? And Paul says, let me commend you so that the churches of God are hearing my boast about you. All the other churches. Because all the other churches are going through the same thing. And the Thessalonians are now being used as a model for how these other churches should also be reacting to the same kinds of persecutions and afflictions. And because of that, you can take great solace, great joy, even in the midst of the persecutions and afflictions because your steadfastness, your endurance, and your faith are growing abundantly, Paul says. And for that, we can say in our hearts and should, praise God. Praise God. I'm not a masochist. I'm not saying bring on more persecution. Just bring it on because if that's the avenue whereby steadfastness and faith are being produced in ever greater ways in my life, then just bring it on. Nobody acts like that. Nobody says that. But because we know what Paul is commending them for, you know that this is the path and you're aware of it. And when it comes, you don't have to be surprised about it. This is what God is doing. He, he orchestrates suffering for the righteous because it breeds steadfastness of soul in all of us and an ever-increasing enlarged faith. Your faith is growing. Why? Because you've got to trust God for every moment, every dime, every situation, every conversation, every epithet, every accusation, every affliction, every problem, every challenge. This is... This is a great commendation for a great church. And don't you know that if they had read this, and of course they probably read this second letter a hundred, a thousand, five thousand times, because as I've said to you before, it was the only scripture they had. Can you imagine that? You would be hanging on every single letter of every single sentence of every single word of this inspired commendation. Got a flagging faith this morning? Hurting? Misunderstood? Challenged? Be encouraged. Steadfastness and faith is growing in you if you get this point. If you get this point. And I think there's something else here. Doesn't it also include what Paul is saying by his very words? Doesn't it also include the encouragement of other believers when they see our response to the suffering? Then you could say something like this. God is using us, brothers and sisters. God is using us. 
and the way we're responding to these persecutions and these trials and these tribulations is now going out like a bullhorn to the churches of God through Paul's pen and the apostolic band and what they're saying both verbally and in written form and they're saying things like this, hey, I know you're going through it too, but let me tell you how the Thessalonians are responding. Now that can pick up a flagging faith. That can lift your sails, my friends. That can give you a steadfastness of hope and a perseverance and a love for Jesus Christ and an understanding of what suffering often does in God's sovereign economy. And what it does is that by your own testimony, other Christians are built up too. I saw this in spades with two years and four months of my dear wife. And every time I came home from the church and she was languishing there and she was inevitably, even as my daughter Lisa and I talked this morning before the service, inevitably she had that Bible in her hands, just reading. And you know, when you walk into a house and you see that and you know someone is staring at death, you say to yourself, how much of the Bible am I reading? How much is... Staring at your own mortality, changing you. Causing you to know, like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that I'm about to go through the river of death into the celestial city to meet my Savior. I better start figuring out even more and more and more what he's like. Because I'm going to meet him shortly. And perhaps some of these believers in Thessalonica were also saying, will the persecutions and the afflictions be so severe that I too may be just about to go through the river of death and to enter the celestial city, heaven itself? Of course. How encouraging is that? And and no wonder, my friends, that the book of James talks about this steadfastness. And it says this with a very familiar passage, James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The same idea, endurance and let endurance, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Lord God wants you to be lacking in nothing as you meet him. And therefore, He uses in his divine economy and his omniscient wisdom how to bring us to the place of most and maximum effectiveness, steadfastness, faith. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 5. You can write that down and look at it later. But this this is a marvelous thing, this idea of God using trials in our lives to bring about steadfastness. Romans chapter 5 says this, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and there's that idea of faith, growing faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope, the hope of the glory of God. More than that, and and this is a hard pill to swallow, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, like I've said, I'm I'm like you. I'm just a mere man with clay feet. Look at the combination of the sentence. We rejoice in our sufferings? 
He doesn't mean bring it on, Lord. He just means in the midst of the suffering, I shall rejoice because I know who's in charge of it all. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now, that's a key idea there. Suffering produces endurance. So no wonder God's bringing it. And when he brings it, endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts, shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So so no wonder God knows what he's doing. It's no wonder to question God in the midst of your persecutions and your afflictions and when you respond rightly to them as you should, as all of us should, even though we might take at times three steps forward and two steps back, right? We know that. But when we respond as we ought, even though we might fail and seek his forgiveness and say, Lord, give me enough grace and give more of that Holy Spirit love that's shed abroad in my heart so that I can go through the rest of these trials in a way that honors you and that increases my steadfastness and faith. And he will always answer that prayer in the affirmative. He always will because he wants us to succeed. He's not trying to hide his will from us. He's not trying to batter us and beat us about the head and shoulder areas of our bodies in three, three ways, fast, hard, and continuously. He's not that way. He's not that way. And Paul says, I so commend you. I so commend you. And then he says this in verse 5. Most interesting. This, 2 Thessalonians 1.5, this, this steadfastness of faith and the persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now that, my friend, is a power-packed sentence. What, what does he mean? What is going on there? What do you mean this steadfastness and faith and the persecutions and the afflictions that I'm enduring is evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Well, God is just. God is right. And by the way, in this section of verses 3 through 12, actually, We're only covering verses 4 to 10 this morning, and I'm looking at the clock. I'm very aware of it. (laughs) I am amazed at the number of times that the Apostle Paul uses this idea of justness in this text. Several times. And here's the first one. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, the justice of God, the justness of God, the rightness of God of the person and character of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What does he mean? Here's what he means. God is sovereignly devising a clear dividing line between his own kingdom and the kingdom of Satan. It's a clear dividing line here. And the righteous, the ones who are suffering by God's very decree by his very sovereign orchestration 
will come out the other side as worthy of the kingdom of God. Now you say, that kind of sounds like works. I mean, that kind of sounds like I've got I've to respond rightly to all of this in order to ultimately be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. That's not what this is saying. Salvation is not by works. There's no inherent worthiness in us already, so how could we work even when we're not worthy to a point where somehow we become worthy and worthy enough to be a part of the citizenry of the kingdom of God? Well, that's actually a teaching that Roman Catholics and so many others who have a works-based salvation actually do teach. And can you imagine the guilt that that puts people under? The weight of it all? You got to do more. Got to give more. Got to be more faithful. Got to serve more. Got to attend more, do more, serve more, help more, so that you may ultimately be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, that's not what this is saying. This is saying that God's righteous vindication is what he's doing in his saints as they suffer so that they could be shown for who they are. They are in Christ. They are his followers, and they will shine forever and ever. They're going to be worthy, not because of anything inherent within them, but because of the worthy one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that worthy one will continue to energize them with faith, with endurance, with the Spirit's power, so that they are truly and one day vindicated and shown to be, in the ultimate sense, a true and genuine part of the kingdom of the living God. Wow. Do you mean you're going to work so in me, Lord, that this suffering and these afflictions are actually doing something? Because you and I can you and I can get in that that maze, that confusion of what's it all about and why am I suffering and this isn't fair and I don't like this and this is a problem and why aren't others suffering like I am and and what's it all worth and I just am ready to give up. But these brothers and sisters are hearing this truth that one day in the consideration of the worthiness of the kingdom of God, God's taking you through the sanctification process so that you come out the other side on the right side of the dividing line. Oh, my friends, this is, this is critical to understand. Listen to Acts 14.22. Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22. Now, some of them might say, and how is that encouraging? How is that encouraging? Tell me again. Because this is hard. This is backbreaking. This is mind-bending. I don't like the suffering. I don't like the tribulations. I don't like the trials that you're bringing into my life. 
But oh, if you have the forward view, if you have the long run in mind, it's not a sprint, this is a marathon. And do you know that outside the end of that journey, that pipeline, is the very revelation that Jesus Christ loves you and he supplied you all the power and through all the afflictions, you are now one of Christ's own worthy kingdom subjects. Now, I think I can endure for that sake. I think I can put up with that. I think I can do exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 about suffering. When you, when you tell me that, when, when you show me that, I can do that. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see this as a cross-referencing text? His glory is going to be revealed, and when it is revealed, you're going to be so rejoicing and glad because you'll be revealed with him in glory. We win. We win in the end. No matter what's happening in the here and now. And Peter goes on to say, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, my friends, you and I really do want the commendation. We want it. I mean, I want God's commendation. I want him to say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Oh, I want that so badly. I can taste it. And this this commendation moves right into our second key element, and that's beginning in verse 6, and that's God's consideration. Because God's not finished yet. If all I told you was what I told you in the first part of this message, we'd all go home and say, praise the Lord, amen, I'm working hard, I want that commendation, but we're not done because God's got a plan, and he's actually choosing in this text to reveal to you that plan. And here it is, God's own consideration. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just. There it is again, that word just. God is righteous. He considers it righteous to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Here's God's consideration. I have not forgotten, nor will I ever forget, all of the suffering and the persecutions and the barbs and the afflictions and the vile nature of their reviling of you. I will never forget one word. I've got it in the memory banks, and I will repay. Do you see that word in the text? I will repay. I will repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, I know, we'll watch a movie, you go into the theater, you always want to see the good guy zap the bad guy. You always want, when when is it going to happen? 
I've been sitting here in this theater for an hour and 42 minutes, and it hasn't happened yet. When is the bad guy going to get his comeuppance? Right here. God considers it righteous to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You don't have to be concerned about this yourself. You don't have to be a vigilante. You don't have to take the weapons up on your own time and in your own way. Leave it to God. And it says he will repay. He he will repay. Remember Romans 12? Do not take vengeance in your own hand, but leave it to the Lord, for he will say, I will take vengeance on those for whom I will take vengeance. Don't be a one-man vigilante crew. Don't, Don't fall prey to the satanic temptation and trap that says, it's been too long, I've been beaten down for too long, and I am tired, and I'm going to take it upon myself to repay. God's consideration is that he will justly and righteously do it in his time. And not only that, look at what it says. And, verse 7a, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Paul and his apostolic band and to all the Thessalonians, the granting of relief. Do you see those two words, those two R words? Repay and relief. Repay and relief. Circle them in your Bibles. Underline them. Star them, exclamation points, highlight, repay, repay, repay. It's on God's economy. It's on his time limit. It's on his sovereign decree that will happen when he determines and decides that it will happen in space and time, and it will happen. And relief. Relief. There will be relief. And, and I know there are a lot of people who say, well, there are a lot of people who even in the Bible met their untimely death in gross ways. Yes, of course they have. Yes, of course. Hebrews chapter 11, and, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put ar- foreign armies to flight. And of course, all of that by, by God's doing and by God's power. Uh, women received back their dead by resurrection. But notice this, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now what about them? And that goes back to the first paragraph of our message, right? I mean, those people are suffering unjustly, Lord. I mean, are you going to let them die? I mean, whatever, whatever happened to the f- putting foreign armies to flight and killing the unjust people and giving them their due? And sometimes God does that. And that list speaks of that. Sometimes it happens just that way. Sometimes in the world, the unrighteous get their comeuppance in this world. And they are judged in this world. 
and sometimes not. And sometimes even the believers fall by way of the sword. Persecution, affliction in this life. Oh, but it opens up in the life to come. All the recompense, all the repaying, that's God's job. It's not ours. We just do what we're told. And you know, either way, you die by the sword here or you die without the sword here and we end up in the same place and here's why and how. And all these, Hebrews eleven thirty nine, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What does that mean? Hey, if we die right now before the coming of Jesus Christ, and if we die at the hands of those who persecute us, or if we are able to get through this life with a few tribulations and a few trials, and we're able to avoid the sword or whatever else it is which will bring the ultimate indignity of our being killed for the sake of Jesus Christ, we both end up in the same place, and that's a better place, and that's a place that's called heavenly glory, and we all get in there no matter how we die. And we all get in there because we've had enduring faith, and the trials of life have shown us that in the end, when we see the glories of heaven, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. We don't have time, but could I read to you Could you read to yourself Revelation chapter 6? Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 11 and Revelation chapter 16. Read that on your own, please. Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 11, and Revelation chapter 16. And in one of those passages, there is a statement where even the martyrs are saying, How long? How long, O Lord? When's the time? When's the opportunity? When's the comeuppance? When's the judgment? When is God's consideration going to happen? Lord, we're hurting. We're dying. We're being martyred. And as though it seems to be unimportant, which it's not, but as you read your Bible and you read like half of a sentence and a phrase in that half sentence that says, just a little while longer. And you say, that's not encouraging. That's just not encouraging because you're in it. But guess what happens when time turns into eternity? That seemed like a nanosecond. Because when you get your resurrected body again and your spirit is is combined back with your body, and you're forever with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity, you're going to say, it was all worth it. God is faithful and true. And I now see the purpose like I never saw it before. This is what this passage is teaching. And I've essentially given you the goodies. Everything up to this message, it's just the goodies. That's the people on the right side of the dividing line. What about the others? What about that question? The wicked, the arrogant, the boastful, the unrighteous, they they seem to get off scot-free. They seem to have all the goodies. They seem to have all they want. They seem to be in charge. What about them? 
How about Christ's condemnation? Thirdly, look at the end of verse 7, end of verse 9. Here it is. Here's the answer. Yes, there's a commendation and there's a consideration from God himself. The commendation by Paul, the consideration by God. How about Christ's role? Here it is, verse 7, latter part of it. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And where are they on the dividing line? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might or his power. I I shudder to even read it, let alone think of the truth of it. Who wants that for anybody that you know and love and you thought of, family members, friends? Neighbors, workmates, classmates. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just powerfully saddening. But this is what God's word says. This is what Christ is going to do. I, 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 I like you, I, I want the Christ that's meek and lowly. I want, I want the Christ that's, that's happy and and joyful. I I want that Christ. I don't want Christ to bring condemnation. I want Christ to bring only commendation for all peoples at all times forever in the world. And you know what? That would be a noble thought if there weren't such a thing called sin. And when sin entered the world, it plunged the whole human race into sin. And when sin brought its evil effects both on the planet and on the people of such a planet, sin has to be dealt with. If there's any righteousness in God, if there's any justice in the character of God, sin has to be dealt with. It does. And how is it dealt with? Jesus is going to bodily return to the earth. He will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, it says. The angels will be his servants dealing out retribution. That's why the title of this message is The Righteous Retribution of God. Retributive justice. And these angels will do his bidding for him, it says in verse 8, in flaming fire. That's actually probably and undoubtedly taken out of Isaiah 65 and 66. This is Paul's meditation on Isaiah 65 and 66. You read it on your own, and you're going to see that angels or God's workers and flaming fire. It's all there. Paul's just borrowing it. And he says, inflicting vengeance on those who, and this is one group of people, not two, who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You know why I think Paul put it that way? Because there are a lot of people in this world that say, I know God. I know God. I have a personal relationship with him. And he knows me. And we're okay. He's my buddy. I'm his. We're good. But if you reject the Lord Jesus, you don't know God. The Bible's clearly telling us that. 
If you do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, what is the gospel? It is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is following him. It is obeying his dictates. And here are his dictates. I challenge you, I summon you to believe in me. To come to me in repentance and faith. And if you were to do so, you would not only be a knower of God, but you would be someone who is obedient to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Obedience. Now, when we offer people this grand message, we often don't think about it in this way. This is something that I'm not asking you to do by way of yes or no, take it or leave it. You must obey it. You have to obey it. This is, this is the very thing that the, the Lord Jesus, through the, the very writing of John the Apostle, as he gathers this, this testimony of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and listen to what John says about Jesus and his message. John three thirty five and 6, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John three thirty three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The gospel, my friends, is a matter of obedience. If you're here today and you've not bowed your knee in following the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you do not know God and you do not have salvation in the Son. I wish there were more words and ways that I could communicate it where your eyes and ears would be immediately open to that truth and you say, this text scares me half to death. But only God the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit can open your eyes and your ears to the truth of what this is saying. I mean, can you imagine the scene that will come one day for all of us, for all mankind? When the Lord Jesus comes with the voice of an archangel. Remember, we studied that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. With the voice of an archangel. And it says, a command. What is that command? It's too late. The command is this. I am now officially determining the dividing line. All of you who are unrighteous, you're on that side of the line. For all of you that are righteous, including those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel, you're on this side of the line. It'll be too late. It'll be entirely too late. That's why Paul says salvation is today. Today is the day of salvation. Repent today. Come to Christ today. You've got to do it today. You've got to do it today. Don't put it off. If you're a young person here, particularly you, you may think you have the rest of your life going for you. It may not be so. For you who are middlers, middler in your ages, and you think, I, I, I want to be with my kids and grandkids and I want to enjoy that aspect of my life. Well, if you don't know Christ, you're not only not going to enjoy that aspect, but you'll be judged and condemned to hell forever. 
You'll, you'll, you'll never be with the saints of the throng who believed in Jesus Christ. You, you won't be there and you won't be worshiping with all of those who you love and who love you. You won't be there unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You won't be there. And you're going to miss out on the fourth and final, and that's the believer's celebration. You see it in verse 10? When he comes, when the Lord Jesus comes on that day, and we're going to find out that day, the day of the Lord, when we get to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. That's what it's referring to, the day of the Lord. When he comes on that day, the day of judgment, the day of the revelation of the full wrath of God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ, But what does it say here in verse 10? When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Oh, that's the the part of the dividing line. That's the place I want to be, right there. And I want to be one of these marvelers and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This is what Jesus Christ and his glorified self will be seeing the marvelous throng of all the ages who will say, yes, Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for dying on the cross for a sinner like me. Thank you for loving me all the way to that cross. Thank you for your satisfactory atonement. Thank you that God the Father planned from eternity past that you, his son, would live a righteous life and die an ignominious, violent, sacrificial death so that I could be redeemed, I could be saved, so that I could be a part of this marvelous throng when Jesus Christ comes on that day. I want to be a part of those who are the glorified the glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. I believe. That's what what you've got to say to yourself today. I believe. I believe in the message that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He's the only way to know God. He's the only way to be blessed in God. He's the only way for me to be on this side of the dividing line. And then Paul ends with that same commendation. Notice what he says. Because our testimony to you was believed. He just takes it right back to the Thessalonians. And he says, I'm so confident in you. I saw the salvation that was wrought in you. And I saw the change in your life. And I saw you bowing your knee to Jesus Christ. And I now see you suffering. And your steadfastness and your faith is growing so that I'm telling all the churches of God about you. And I'm boasting in the most God-honoring way because there's going to come a time when Jesus Christ returns to this earth in bodily form to set up the dividing line where he says, you go here and you go here. And I want to be in the marveling throng who says, I believe. And you won't take any credit for it. You're going to say, I believe because Jesus Christ opened my eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Oh, my friends, if you're here today, if you're listening to me by live streaming, if you're outside, if you're inside, I can't put it any other way than this. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You want to marvel with the believers of all the ages? You want to be in that group? Come over on this side of the dividing line. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, How can we thank you enough? 
How can we express our gratitude to you enough for what you've done for us? Jesus Christ was given for us so that we might avoid this wrath. We we aren't like those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We're, We're not like that. They're going to be on the other side of that dividing line and and it's going to be sad and sorrowful and I I hate even the thought of it. But it is true and it will happen. And I want to thank you for causing my ears to be open and my eyes to stop being blind to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's coming one day to judge the living and the dead and And there'll be a marveling at his appearing. And when there is, I want to be a part of that. Even if I have to go through the suffering, even the strengthening of the steadfastness and endurance of my faith and the the idea that it's all going to be worth it because through the sanctification of my life, I'm going to be seen as worthy of the kingdom of God, not for what I did, but for what God did through and in me by his power. Oh, may it be so. And may, not, may, may there not be anyone here right now who has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and to love him forever and ever, even through the suffering, because we'll one day be commended like these Thessalonians. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We thank you for the message of truth. And we believe such truth. In Jesus' name, amen.